Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off? Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. Every virus has its hallmarks. The type of disease it manifests, the cells it can infect, its preferred mode of transmission, how many deaths it causes. But some stand out for their ruthlessness. COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, smallpox, avian flu, measles virus, the so-called swine flu, herpes and yellow fever, and then the Ebola epidemic, or MERS, HIV, then poliovirus. Since viruses were discovered in the late 1800s, the fight against them has become an indelible part of our collective history. Much of the future strength of America depends upon the success that we achieve in combating this disease. And also spurred innovation. The ability to grow viruses in cells and study them, that was a polio thing, and it informed all other viruses uh, to this day, in fact. So polio has been really a leader in, uh, in teaching us how to work on other viruses. From The Wall Street Journal, this is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babbitt. Today on the podcast, how one of society's most dreaded infectious diseases created a golden age of research we're still benefiting from today. When it comes to life on Earth, viruses are kind of like our older siblings. They've been around much longer than us. And it took us ages to figure out that these nano bits were causing us so much trouble. One of the first human viruses to be identified was a nasty one. Polio occurs everywhere, in this country and throughout the world. The polio virus. It was discovered around the turn of the last century, and waves of outbreaks raged on for decades. Many people who get infected never get sick. Only about 4 to 8 percent of the population would show symptoms, and of those, just 1 to 2 percent would suffer severe complications. But those complications were life-changing. Polio could infect a person's spinal cord. Sometimes it could wither their limbs and render their lungs useless. Victims could be left paralyzed for life. It could also kill. And it hit kids under five years old the hardest. This year, infantile paralysis is striking rather heavily and evenly in a great many states, particularly Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas. Spikes would happen in the summer. Urban dwellers would sometimes try to escape to the country, but they'd often be turned back, kept out of small towns out of fear that they'd spread the disease. Polio struck at Massachusetts and Wisconsin. And in their fear of it, people stayed at home. Children were not allowed to leave their own yards. We knew the infection was caused by a virus, but there was confusion over how it was transmitted and about how to stem the outbreaks. This is a radio host in 1949 interviewing Dr. Hart E. Van Riper from the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. I take it there's no way to actually prevent it. I'm afraid not, not yet. Scientific researchers are working on it, of course, And our progress toward developing a vaccine or some other preventive is very hopeful. But when it will pay off, we just can't estimate. You have to remember there was no Americans with Disabilities Act back then, and few families had health insurance. Parents dreaded having less abled or paralyzed children. 
But it was this fear, in part at least, that helped to foster an era of unprecedented medical research. Another factor was the work of one famous, tireless cheerleader for the disease, who was also its highest profile victim. The dread disease that we battle at home, like the enemy we oppose abroad, shows no concern, no pity for the young. Franklin Roosevelt, the influential four-term U.S. president, contracted polio later in life. That was him speaking on the eve of his birthday in 1944. Even in the middle of a war, Roosevelt was calling on the American public to help fight polio. It strikes with its most frequent and devastating force against children. And that is why much of the future strength of America depends upon the success that we achieve in combating this disease. FDR was a super successful fundraiser for polio research, the fundraiser. He was able to get people to donate to the cause even during an economic downturn. In 1938, he and his friend Basil O'Connor from the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis came up with an idea. Ask Americans what they could give, even if it was just a dime, and offer that as a personal birthday gift to the president. And they did. Americans wound up sending more than $2.6 million in dimes, and they kept it up. I wish to express heartfelt thanks to all of you who have contributed your dimes and your dollars to further the fight against a cruel disease. The model was successful. Money for research came primarily from the March of Dimes, and the Dimes kept fueling innovation even after Roosevelt died. Maybe it was the victims, mostly children. Maybe it was the era through World War II and beyond. Researchers say there was a can-do feeling of optimism that attracted the best and brightest scientists to the effort to create a polio vaccine. From the start, people wanted to work on it. This is Columbia University professor Vincent Racaniello. Many of the best virologists of the era worked on polio virus to just try and make a vaccine. Racaniello says many of the fundamental advances in research techniques that we still use today some to tackle the new coronavirus come from this golden era of virology begun with the search for a polio cure. One of the breakthrough discoveries along the way was when researchers figured out how to grow viruses on cells in a glass dish. It's hard to imagine now, but before this, they could only grow them in animals, sometimes using gruesome methods like implanting infected spines in primates. The ability to grow viruses in cells and study them, that was a polio thing, and it informed all other viruses uh, to this day, in fact. So polio has been really a leader in, uh, in teaching us how to work on other viruses. Three scientists won the Nobel Prize for this technique in 1951. But even as hard as researchers worked, kids kept getting sick from polio. When outbreaks would flare up, whole towns would order movie theaters and swimming pools closed. By the 1950s, polio was the top communicable disease for children. And then, after nearly 50 years... Dr. Jonas Salk, discoverer of the first successful vaccine against infantile paralysis, 
gives the first official reports to a waiting world at the University of Michigan. Dr. Salk's own child was one of the two million children involved in tests of his vaccine. Tests which have ended for all time the threat of one of the world's most vicious diseases. And the Salk announcement was made April 12, 1955, in the morning at the University of Michigan where the trial had been conducted. This is historian Daniel Wilson. He's written a number of books about polio. The polio vaccine was really <clears throat> the first successful vaccine for a childhood disease so that it gave a real boost to the development of the other childhood vaccines. Wilson says parents clamored to get the vaccine, even though it was new and didn't yet have a long track record. Parents were anxious to to sign up their sons and daughters for an experimental vaccine that they were assured was both safe and effective. They hadn't run a big trial and well over a million parents signed up their children because they were so afraid of polio. This happened despite a dangerous setback that today would likely have ended the vaccine. California-based pharmaceutical company Cutter Laboratories made a fatal mistake. There was a bad batch. The SOC is a killed virus vaccine, and there was a batch that had the live virus in it. It caused at least 200 cases of polio, at least 10 children died. It really set back vaccination. But not by all that much. Wilson says the fear of polio was greater than the fear of a botched preventative. And he knows this firsthand. He's a polio survivor. Wilson got the virus in September 1955, five months after the vaccine came out. The Salk vaccine came online in April, but there was an immediate shortage of vaccines. So public health officials decided to initially immunize only kids who were going to be in school. Wilson turned five that year, too young for first grade. Instead of school and a vaccine, Wilson got sick. My father picked me up and carried me to the car and carried me into the hospital and left me there because it was an isolation hospital. Polio is spread through an oral fecal route, through contaminated food or water or person to person. Just like today with COVID-19, polio victims like Wilson were forced into quarantine. But if we think the current shelter-in-place orders are tough, these directives were even tougher than today. Whole hospitals were dedicated to polio and visitors were banned. The isolation could go on for months and even parents were kept out. Wilson's mom was crafty, though. There was a shortage at the time of people to help polio victims, so she volunteered at the hospital to administer hot packs to polio patients, including him. But I would listen for her footsteps. Uh, Mothers, especially in high heels, which in the 50s was common, have a distinctive gait, and you would listen for the sound of your mother's footsteps in the hall. Wilson was lucky. He had to learn to walk again, but he escaped the long-term paralysis that many polio victims suffered. His case was actually considered mild. Ultimately, the polio vaccine became the second successful vaccine in human history after the smallpox vaccine. 
And even after the vaccine was developed and the mistakes of the live virus were worked out, poliovirus discoveries continued to advance virology. Up next, how techniques honed on polio are helping us to fight SARS-CoV-2. I'm Janet Babin. This is the future of everything. Meta has spent upwards of $50 billion developing the metaverse. But will it pay off for the company, its investors, and for CEO Mark Zuckerberg? Over time, I hope that we are seen as a metaverse company. And I want to anchor our work and our identity on what we are building towards. Meta's trillion-dollar business and how we use the internet could hang in the balance. Go inside the company in a new three-part series, From Facebook to Meta, Zuckerberg's Big Bet, in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. This is the future of everything. I'm Janet Babin. Finding a vaccine for polio galvanized the scientific community. It was in many ways a foundational virus. Even after its discovery, researchers repurposed what they learned, using those advances to solve for other problems and create new research techniques. This was the route that virologist Vincent Racaniello took. In the late 1970s, he headed to MIT to work for biologist David Baltimore. Baltimore had recently won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his discovery that viruses with RNA genomes could be inserted into a host cell's DNA. And he had a mission for Racaniello. He said to me, Vinny, I want you to work on polio. (laughs) Racaniello used Baltimore's award-winning technique on the polio virus for the first time. Uh, We found that if you made a DNA copy of polio virus, polio has an RNA genome, You could take that DNA copy and just put that in a cell and it would start an infection. And that was an amazing finding because now that's how we make uh, vaccines. Racaniello says people used to ask him why he was working on a disease that had already been cured. But he explains that there's still much to learn from a virus so well understood and solved. At Columbia, he and his team discovered the proteins that allow the poliovirus to bind with human cells. These proteins are similar to something you may have heard in the news lately connected to COVID-19. It's a term known as ACE2, and these are enzymes. They're found on the outside of cells, in the lining of the nose, they're in the lungs, kidneys, other places. But any place that these cells are, this is where coronavirus can take hold. So these enzymes are what allow the SARS-CoV-2 virus to attach to a cell and infect it. You know, everyone's talking about SARS-CoV-2 binds to ACE2 on the cell, right? Well, Mm -hmm. we identified the polio receptor uh, way back in the 80s. And then we took the gene for that receptor and we, we made a transgenic mouse which you could then infect and give polio to. It was the first animal model using uh, a transgenic animal model using a receptor. 
Racaniello's method is now considered a classic. It's being employed by a lab in Maine to breed genetically modified mice that researchers can infect with the virus, and then they can test COVID-19 drugs and vaccines on the mice. Just as polio motivated a new generation of virologists to step up their efforts, Racaniello expects our current pandemic will do the same. He has a wish list of key discoveries. He hopes research into SARS-CoV-2 and all coronaviruses will unveil to usher in the next golden era in virology research. I want to be able to look at the virus and say, here is the, is the antibody. We can make it. We know exactly where it should be binding to prevent infection. That's very hard to do because you know, antibodies are complicated proteins and we're not quite sure how um, they, they arise in the first place. So I would love to be able to say, here's a new virus, here is the gene sequence, and let's make an antibody right now that'll be therapeutic. That may sound easy, but there are a lot of things that have to happen to make that scenario a reality. For example, researchers need to better understand a variety of immune cells called B cells that secrete antibodies. Under the right conditions, humans create these antibodies when exposed to a virus. Some of them will try to fight off the virus. But Racaniello says antibodies are surprisingly difficult to engineer in the lab. And in part, it's because we make so many different kinds of antibodies. Racaniello says it's hard to know ahead of time which ones will actually stop the virus and which ones are just there. So the dream would be to know which antibodies, which B cells, will be protective and to engineer them in a lab. But the reality, what we can do right now, is to find those antibodies through trial and error in humans through the process of creating a vaccine. But how we do that is also changing. Research into a totally new type of vaccine that had dried up is being brought back to life. So the polio virus was made by taking a fragment of virus, either weakening it or killing it, and then injecting that into people to trigger an immune response. But just this week, a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine trial that showed preliminary positive results used a new technology. It's known as a gene-based vaccine. These gene-based vaccines, for a number of years, I think people have seen them as the wave of the future. Wall Street Journal reporter Peter Loftus says the hunt for this kind of a vaccine took off earlier this year. It happened after Chinese researchers sequenced the SARS-CoV-2 genome and made the sequence publicly available. Using that information, the drug maker Moderna, working with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, used the code to identify certain genetic morsels of viral proteins that for various reasons look like they might be a good target to include in a vaccine. Loftus explains how the vaccine would work in the body. You're taking RNA or DNA and you're injecting it into a person, and then that that genetic information basically instructs the body's cells to make certain proteins that resemble the virus or resemble portions of the virus. And then that's what then in turn would trigger an immune response. The company tested it on a small group, fewer than 50 people. 
Loftus says the preliminary results show the test vaccine to be generally safe and well-tolerated. That's the first thing, do no harm. And he says, most importantly, it also shows that people who got this vaccine are making antibodies. They've um, achieved a certain level of antibody production in their blood, antibodies to the virus. Um, What we don't yet know, I think the big question is, does that does that confer enough protection to actually protect people from COVID-19? Like we said, not every antibody produced against a virus will end up attacking that virus. And it's important to remember that the Moderna study has yet to determine whether these antibodies can stop the virus from getting into human cells, replicating, and infecting. But there are many reasons this type of vaccine would be a breakthrough. You don't have to grow the virus. And because you don't have to insert live or dead viruses into people, it would reduce the likelihood of having a bad reaction. I think that's the concept, that that, that these types of vaccines um, theoretically could, could minimize safety risks. But I do think there's an open question about whether they're potent enough to to actually confer protection from disease. Another company, Inovio Pharmaceuticals, is also working on a gene-based vaccine, but it's using DNA instead of RNA. Loftus says results of its initial trials are expected in a few weeks. To be clear, until advanced trials confirm that these gene-based vaccines can actually make antibodies that can reduce the rate of infection, we won't know whether they're effective. But there are about 100 entities working on a vaccine, and that's a lot. And Loftus says at least eight are already doing human testing, and one in China has reached an advanced testing phase. All this after just a few months. Remember, it took 50 years for the polio vaccine to be developed after the virus was discovered. One more cautionary note. The World Health Organization set a goal to eradicate polio by the year 2000. We came very close. But even with the vaccine, there are still some isolated pockets of polio in the world today. The Future of Everything is a production of The Wall Street Journal. Stephanie Ilgenfritz is the editorial director of The Future of Everything. Lee Camping Carter is digital director of The Future of Everything. This episode's sound designer is Sean Marquand. Our producer is Casey Georgie. Kateri Yokum is The Wall Street Journal's executive producer of audio. I'm Janet Babin. Thanks for listening.